Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Claire Martin, an alum in the class of 2017. Claire, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, well, let's maybe kick things off with with a big existential question of when did you know that you loved theater? When I began. So mm-hmm. when I was 10, I was having a lot of trouble making friends um, in my elementary school. My parents, I think a common problem. Common problem, yeah. right? <laughs> I know. Um, in, in being different, we are all the same. So <laughs> my parents had already tried the tactic of changing schools. So I'd already transferred schools once, and that hadn't really solved the problem right. of feeling like I was on the outside. Right. And so I think because I would um, you know, run around the house blaring off speeches that I had memorized from like Disney movies yeah. because I was a singer. I played piano. I had danced since I was two. Um, and I was in classes for all of those things. I think my my blessed parents thought that theater was just the natural next step. Sure. And I think they also hoped that I would make some friends. And amazingly, wonderfully, they were right on both counts. They signed <laughs> me up for a week-long theater camp. Um, it was like peanuts, like the peanuts comic right. strip. Yeah. I don't think the theater that I was at had enough money to actually like buy the rights to the peanuts musical. <laughs> so it was like a fake musical that right. the <laughs> drama teacher had written. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I was cast as Lucy and I sang a song about the planets and the end of the first day, I felt like I had 12 new friends, uh, which was a whole new experience for me. I'd never made friends with anyone my own age that quickly before. Yeah. But I also, I remember standing in front of everyone and auditioning with my Lucy song, right. um, in which I just sort of listed off all the planets. It was a very, like, speak singy song, and I was, like, making up choreography as I went along, and I just f- had this little girl certainty of, like, oh, yeah, here it is. This is what I have to do forever for the rest of my life. Right. Uh, and that feeling just never went away. And was Lucy your first role? I guess, yes, she was. Yeah. And singing about the solar system was my, <laughs> was what that was it? my breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's come up in this podcast before and then also that I think I've just noticed in my life with mm-hmm. people that are in the arts is the sense of... Um, purpose that you have to have to stick it out because so often the world says you're not going to be able to do that right or that's not going to be the right choice and so I'm especially struck in listening to you by you saying I knew it and I was sure Mm -hmm. did you ever waver never once never in my whole life I've I've gained certainty about the kinds of work that I am attracted to, both in terms of what I want to see and what I want to do scholarship on, and most importantly, the kind of work that I want to create. Mm -hmm. I've gained clarity and I've, I've sort of focused in uh, but I've never lost that that clarity that this is the one thing that I was put on earth to do and I have to do it until I'm gone. And within that category, did you start out thinking you would be an actor? I did. I th- I think so Everybody many of does. us do. Yeah. yeah. And unless and there are some people who find their way into the design elements sure. early, who who maybe love fashion and just go straight into costume design. Right. But I think for most of us who are on the um, the performance side, yeah. directors, playwrights, dramaturgs, actors, I think most of us 
are given our first taste uh, via acting. And it's really hard uh, not to get kind of swept along by that drug. Mm-hmm. It is a high <laughs> being on stage. Um, yeah. And it is the closest to substance abuse that I've ever come. <laughs> uh, and I've abused that substance so many times. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I think until I was about probably 16 or 17, I thought, yeah, long term, need to be an actor. Uh, And then when I was a senior in high school, I tried directing for the first time, uh, and I wrote my first play. Mm. And that sort of changed everything for me because I started realizing that I could actually offer more to the field than than just being on stage and speaking someone else's words, doing someone else's movements. I could actually be uh, inventing and creating, creating, triggering opportunities for other young actors to stand up on stage and have the experiences that I had. Um, I'm a control freak and I'm type A. (laughs) And so once I once I like started directing, it was very difficult to let that go. Sure. So how um, how does it change the experience for you to be performing your own work and your own concept? Does it feel different in it the does. final accounting? It absolutely accounting? does. Yeah. So for my my sort of senior capstone project at the University of Puget Sound, yeah. I wrote a play and then I directed a tiny little black box uh, shoestring budget performance of it. It was actually – it was a staged reading. The actors had scripts. Yeah. Um, so it, it was about as uh, low impact as it's possible for a performance to be. Um, and I think for those six rehearsals that we had, I – don't even remember them. I was just on cloud nine. Right. Um, and I feel the same way when I'm working on Shakespeare. Um, it's almost like time ceases to exist. And I'm just in this like vacuum um, of sort of creative energy and excitement and adrenaline. So you, you can tell when you're working on something that has that sort of personal yeah. hook. Um, and, you know, when you're in the room with other actors who are ready to take ownership of their characters and their lines, uh, when everyone comes to the table with this idea that, like, we all belong there, that we have a right to be there, that's when the real magic can happen. And we should say for people that you mentioned Shakespeare because that's that's kind of your thing. That's your love. Yes. When did you figure that out? Where did that come in on the journey? So I started reading Shakespeare when I was 10. Um, for fun or for in fun. school? Yeah. So <laughs> my fourth grade teacher um, had had a print up of a sonnet on her wall. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, when I was 10, I didn't know what a sonnet was. Sure. But I remember reading it. It was one of Shakespeare's, I think 101. Um, and I remember seeing it on the wall and I would I would read it all the time. And um, because I have sort of semi-eidetic memory, when I read something, I remember it forever. And so I would start saying it. Right. Um, and I think she heard me one day <laughs> and she was the one who told me, well, it's it's Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, I went home to my parents not knowing who Shakespeare was. And I said, well, I think I should just read everything he ever wrote. <laughs> and my parents were like, well, we don't think you know what you're taking on, but OK. And yeah. so for Christmas that year, I actually they gave me a copy of the complete works. It was my oh, first cool. my first copy of the complete works. Uh, and then by St. Patrick's Day, three months later, I had read the whole thing. You had read all of them. Mm-hmm. Holy and then, smokes. Yeah. Claire. And then I, I've read the canon twice a year, every year since then. So I think I've read every play about 25 times. Some of them I have memorized. Some of them I've read hundreds of times. Front to back memorized. Front to back memorized. But, but Many of them that I don't like as much. <laughs> I right. just I just do my annual readings <laughs> and call it good and call it good. Yeah, um, I suffer. I suffer through the the lines and let it go. Um, but two years ago, I had almost wow. It's almost been two years, which is unbelievable to me. I had an experience that sort of 
just woke me up uh, to my love of Shakespeare in a whole new way. So I've been going to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, since I was 13. Mm-hmm. I'm a Portland, Oregon girl. And of course, the festival is only five hours south. Yeah. And once my parents you know, realized how much I love Shakespeare, they started helping me get there every once in a while so I could see shows. And the September after you and I graduated from mm-hmm. the University of Puget Sound, my parents sent me down to Ashland for the first time in four years for my 23rd birthday. Mm. And I took a friend, and we had tickets to see Shakespeare in Love, which is the play based off of my favorite movie. It's a terrific it's piece. Such, it's such a good movie. Yeah, it it's, is. It's just a love letter to Shakespeare. And people who who get antsy about the non-historical aspect that I think I'm missing the point it's a delight and I'll say as an aside in case anyone's wavering on whether to watch it it's also really funny it's so funny it's so like Shakespeare's plays it's so much more than just romance right so you go down to see a production of Shakespeare in Love I do and my parents had told me well just pick another play because you're going to be down there for Mm -hmm. two nights so just pick a show that you and your friend want to see on the other night Yeah. and kind of on a whim I selected Henry IV Part (laughs) 1 which is not has never been one of my my favorite plays to read. Yeah. It was one that I'd always just done the compulsory readings for and then kind of forgotten about. Right. I'd always found the characters really obnoxious and the story kind of nonsensical. Um, and I felt like Act 5 belonged in a different play than the other four acts. And I, I don't know. I just had kind of dismissed it my whole life. And I sat in that theater that night. It was directed by Liliana Blaine Cruz, uh, starring Daniel Jose Molina as Prince Hal. And I was catatonic for three hours my friend had to drag me out of the theater because the security guards were coming over because everyone else had left the it was theater time to go and I couldn't move and I that was when I realized I'd been crying but I was crying silently so I, like, I didn't feel that I had been crying <laughs> and I was just like so heartbroken to have left the world that I had just been a part of for three hours. And I had never seen a Shakespeare play live before that made me think that everything happening was real, that made me forget Mm. everything that was going to happen. I forgot how the play ended. I cried when the characters died. I was absolutely swept away. It was... It was almost painful. It was so beautiful. And in the weeks that followed, I was just, I went through this kind of crazy, turbulent, you know, sort of series of emotional breakdowns. Every couple of days, I would like go into the bathroom and cry. And I would remember, you know, stage pictures. And I'd remember bits of music, the way that they would say certain speeches, um, the way that the characters would look at each other. And and I remember thinking, God, I all I want to do in the world is is be a part of that world and and have my fingerprint on something that that is so cohesive and meaningful and powerful and visceral and beautiful. And um, that was that was when I realized the universe had kind of sent me that play mm. right after I'd graduated from college <laughs> at a very sort of um, at a turning point in my life, yeah. at a volta in my life. Um, and it was telling me, like, this is actually the thing. You've right. always you've always had access to these texts. You've always loved these stories, but it's actually what you have to do. You have to do this kind of work, and you have to inspire young people the way you were just inspired, and you have to make them understand that Shakespeare is for everyone, and that his texts belong to the world, um, and that his stories are, you know, sort of gorgeously hopeful about human beings and our capacity. And so that was that was it. That was when I made the decision that I was going to be an early modern theater maker, and that's what I've done ever since. Whoa. One. (laughs) Two, you make that decision, and I think it's one thing to realize this is what I want, 
kind of a separate thing to go get it. Yes. Want to learn more about the time classics professor Eric Orland staged a mock siege of Athens in Wyatt Hall? I'm Tori Henson, Assistant Director of Admission and Transfer Admission Coordinator at Puget Sound. And you can go to pugetsound.edu slash stories to read about Reacting to the Past, Athens versus Sparta in 2019. What do you do next? Uh, well, this summer, <laughs> this summer, I'm 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 directing a production of Romeo and Juliet here in Tacoma, um, inspired by the March for Our Lives movement that followed the Parkland shooting last Valentine's Day. But really, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. So um, once I had that experience, that really clarified for me the kinds of things, the kinds of work that I wanted to do. What I needed to study then was um, sort of advanced. I needed advanced Shakespeare training and I needed advanced directing training uh, so that I could start making plays like the one that I had seen. So I spent the year following graduation um, working locally in Tacoma and applying to graduate school. Yeah. I ended up uh, applying to 10 programs, um, and I traveled all over the states auditioning and interviewing. Um, A lot of my programs were in the UK, so I spent a lot of time in the wee hours on Skype. Um, (laughs) And uh, ultimately, I was accepted to the Royal Holloway University of London's MA in theater directing, uh, hosted by hosted, I think that's the right word, uh, by Katie Mitchell, an incredibly uh, elite and prestigious theater director from England who works all over Europe. Um, so there were eight of us in the cohort from all over the world, um, and we spent we spent a year learning her method um, from her, uh, getting critique on our directing skills, taking classes about sort of current modes of directing in the UK and abroad. Uh, and then ultimately Katie asked me to step away from my program early, uh, and assistant direct a production that was opening off Broadway in the spring. So I actually ended up leaving London in March and then I was in London, it was in New York for eight weeks. Uh, and then I came back here to direct R&J. So really for me, the, the going and doing it part is just not letting myself sit still long enough to get scared of the task at right. hand um, or feel daunted and just kind of continue to throw my essence at a wall and hope that something sticks. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of keep racing against time and taking projects as they come, inventing my own um, until one day I, you know, make a whirring sound and shut down. <laughs> well, and just to summarize what you've just said, you graduate from Puget Sound. Yes. You have this experience where you think this is it. I, mm-hmm. I got it. I, f- I know what I want to do. Yeah. You apply to graduate school. You get into a master's program. You go to London mm-hmm. to pursue your master's. You step away from that program without ending it. You're still getting the degree, but to go assistant direct an off-Broadway play. Yes. And then you come back to Tacoma to direct your own concept of a production of Romeo and Juliet. Yes. In two years? Yeah. Whew. No wonder you think you might make a whirring sound and shut down. Uh, yeah, I think I have, I probably have something akin to like artistic or intellectual whiplash, <laughs> but I just haven't spent enough time thinking about it. So, you know, well, just keep moving forward. And let's just, while we're talking about it, let's say for people, when is Romeo and Juliet? If people want to come see the production, how do they do it? How can they find out more about it? 
love this question. <laughs> um, yes, so we are going to be opening the show on Friday, August 9th. Uh, it runs the 9th and 10th and the 16th and 17th. Both are Friday, Saturdays. Um, our venue is to be determined. We may actually end up touring in a bit, but it cool. will probably be happening at Stadium High School in their beautiful auditorium. Yeah. Um, it's dramaturgically quite watertight for us to have a production that is about a group of high schoolers remounting a canceled production of Romeo and Juliet in the wake of a school shooting to perform it in an actual high school. Right. Um, so most of the actors are actually University of Puget Sound current students or alumni mm. um, because we have an affiliation with the university that allows actors who are enrolled there to get college credit for it. Sure. Um, but they are all playing high schoolers. And the concept for the production is that two months after a high school was closed down because of a shooting, a group of students who were all uh, working on a production of Romeo and Juliet decide that they're going to remount it in honor of their fallen friends and fill in the cast, uh, play all of the roles that their friends were playing who are now either deceased or or injured or gone. Um and in the process of sort of working their way through a dress rehearsal of Romeo and Juliet, the students end up coming together and healing and the act of making theater becomes an act of redemption for all of them. Um, and kind of a, a statement that unites them all that uh, the art will continue uh, and that violence can't can't break us apart. Uh, and even in our worst moments, we will always have the ability to come together and tell stories. So there, it is Romeo and Juliet. In some ways, you'll hear the text that you recognize and you'll see the circumstances that we're all so familiar with. Um, the play is iconic and we've kept much of the iconography, but also there are moments of new dialogue, naturalistic dialogue. It feels quite modern. Teenagers are wearing their own clothing. Yeah. Um, they're playing Kesha music. So it is, it's it's very much an R&J for our time, uh, as well as a celebration of the 400 years that have come before. And just to put you on the spot a little bit, which is one of my favorite Socratic method <laughs> things to do, honed with my liberal arts education. Amazing. Uh, will you talk a little bit about why does it matter to you to make that point through Shakespeare? Why, why not write a play that makes this point without ever once mentioning Romeo and Juliet? Because we are connected to the past and cyclical violence perpetrated uh, by young people but encouraged and enabled by adults is a theme that has lasted the centuries. It is a problem that should have been solved 400 years ago and has not been yet. I want to address the fact that our Gen Z teenagers in America today, they are not living in uh, they are not living in a, a new world. The 21st century is not you know kind of a new tyrant that we have to fight. It is actually, Nothing more than the manifestation of, you know, centuries, millennia um, of adults refusing or, or being unwilling to empathize and communicate with young people to honor their experiences and to nurture a world in which they can express their feelings in healthy ways, um, in nonviolent ways. Um, you know, I want to I want to recognize the fact that despite our America's current boiling point we did not end up here in a vacuum. Mm. Uh, we are we are the, nothing more or less than the product of a history of prejudice and marginalization um, and cruelty. So, uh, but the sort of the the not terror terrible side of it <laughs> is that um, Romeo and Juliet is a beautiful story about young people choosing love, choosing generosity and hope. 
um, in a world that tells them that to be successful and to earn the love and respect of authority figures in your life, you must be xenophobic and prejudiced Mm -hmm. and violent. Um, It's about teenagers that choose to set aside that worldview and love each other, which is exactly what what happens in the wake of every school shooting in America is it is the young people who heal um, thanks to their own united efforts to to continue to love and promote acceptance. So um, I think that using a play that so many people think they know that a lot of us, you know, are at least remotely familiar with um, and refracting it through an America that we are all very familiar with now. Um, It's a nice way of sort of showcasing the fact that we uh, we are the inheritors um, of Shakespeare's Verona and Mm. that we are still trapped in it in many ways. Um, And I want to I want to be very honest about that. But I also want people to perhaps gain from the story, which ends with hope and ends with reconciliation in the face of overwhelming obstacle. And that's powerful. Yeah, it's really powerful. I hope it will be. Yeah. It's really not up. You're to, still it's, executing. It's, yes, I'm still executing. It's not up for me to say whether it's going to work or not. But I think that um, for those of us that are in the rehearsal room, it's working on us. Yeah. And that matters, too. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'm really struck by is your comment about um, making explicit the relevance of Shakespeare. Yeah. Because I think the law, the way that a lot of people, maybe the majority of Americans encounter Shakespeare is one or two forced plays in a high school English class. Right. And, you know, I'm kind of a nerd. You're aware of that fact about me. I like to read. I'm I'm like the demographic target for this kind of thing. And I first encountered a lot of Shakespeare in ways that would make anybody, except it sounds like you, uh, bash their head into a wall. That is so fair. And so I think one of the things that is really powerful about seeing these plays recast in ways that makes the relevance of those themes immediate Mm -hmm. and explicit is that it makes it really clear why it matters to keep engaging with art. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, when we see people who look and sound like ourselves speaking words that for so long have been held aloft, um, whether intentionally or not, as like the pian of elitism or intellectualism or, or you know, white or British or male superiority are actually just stories about what it means to be a person. Who yeah. are we? Why are we? What are we? Um, and in order to feel like those questions resonate in our souls, we have to see and hear people speaking the words um, that look like us and sound like us, that remind us of us. Right. So, you know, a story like Romeo and Juliet, which is about, you know, young people Um, in hopeless circumstances, choosing love and choosing to fight against violence, we have to see young people that look like we do today, Um, which means young people of of all races, ethnography, uh, ethnicities, genders, you know, wearing ripped jeans and chains and having tattoos and, you know, wearing high heels. And then and then to hear those words, that's what makes us actually register the fact that Shakespeare was not just writing for his day and time. Um, he was writing about what is inside of us. Um, and that is that is a universal and that outlasts the test of time. Claire.
Claire, we end all of our conversations with the same four questions. Okay. I actually have a bonus first question for you, which is fantastic. Will you just tell us what your favorite Shakespeare play is? Yes, it's Henry V. Henry V. Henry V. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the usual four questions start with, what is the best place on campus? Norton Clapp Theater. Have to say it. It's where I spent, oh God, more hours than I want to admit in a <laughs> podcast. Uh, it's, yeah, it's my home inside of my Puget Sound home. Second question, what are you reading right now? It's a book, uh, amazing book of essays called Shakespeare's Unruly Women mm. uh, by Georgiana Ziegler. Um, she has two other fellow writers whose names I can't remember at the moment, but it's three spectacular feminist Shakespearean scholars. Uh, and it's just a series of essays about how the Victorians who were patently more prudish than the Elizabethans of Shakespeare's day, how they grappled with Shakespeare's women who are actually quite a bit more uh, risque than we might think. Third question, what's the best place to eat in Tacoma? I, I think Wild Orchid because mm. I love Thai food. But also I'm a bit biased. Wild Orchid was one of the few quote unquote fancy restaurants that I could walk to from Puget Sound. <laughs> I didn't have a car until my senior year. So I'm, I think I'm biased. And lastly, what makes Puget Sound special? Just the passion of everyone, the students, faculty and staff, um, everyone cares. And what we care about is different. Um, and the way that we express that passion is different. I, of course, found it in, in theater. Some people find it in intramural sports. I mean, everyone, I think, can find it in the classroom if you're taking classes that, that you've chosen. Um, our professors care so profoundly about enriching our lives, not just educating us. Uh, and they believe in what they teach. So I think that you get all of that passion crammed into the same, you know, 14 block radius. Um, And it's just kind of intoxicating. Claire Martin, thanks for sharing your passion with us. Elena Becker, thank you so much for having me on your program. (laughs) Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast. For more information about Red Leather Theatre Company's production of Romeo and Juliet, opening on August 9th, you can head to Facebook and find their page using the handle RJProject2019.